Other tone, 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 tone. This is a true story. Drapetomaniacs uses dramatizations, primary sources, and the research of black historians to depict real events and historical figures. Today's episode stars W. Kamau Bell and Carvel Wallace. If you're a member of Black Twitter, and, you know, let's face it, you are, because you're listening to this podcast, then you're familiar with and have probably chimed in on the Diaspora Wars. For those of you who aren't chronically online, or you may be sitting on the train next to that militant Black person who refuses to turn their speaker off, Diaspora Wars are what happens when Black social media users start arguing about what kind of Black people is superior to the other kind of Black people based on their location on the globe. Is it the black folks from the motherland of Africa, the original recipe black folks, if you will, or those from the islands? If your ancestors were dropped off in the Caribbean, does that make you better than the ones who landed in South Carolina? Calculating what sparks the war is difficult, but sometimes a random tweet goes viral and ignites the flames of a social media showdown. Dinner time. What are y'all eating? I'm in the mood for thinking of something spicy. Sometimes it's a think piece by a slightly out of touch Afropolitan calling out European airports for putting African airlines at the farthest ends of the terminals. DM takeout recommendations, please, and thanks. Or when your favorite black British actor pulls out their best Denzel impression for a chance at that Emmy or Oscar. There's a new African restaurant listed on the delivery apps that looks good. Unrelated. Is there some way to know for sure that they have a real African running things back there? Asking for a friend. In my experience, however, diaspora wars are often incited by far more innocuous triggers. I'm the friend. I really miss Jollof. I mean, real Jollof. Jollof ain't nothing but Uncle Ben's with Zatarain's and peas in it. I see we're back to performing Jollof slander for clicks. Aren't we tired? We do this every time Mercury is in the microwave. I assume they missed it while they were busy being made to pick cotton. My bad. Woo! you're hearing a sample of paraphrased tweets collected from different diaspora war skirmishes. The hashtag discourse regularly descends into chaos. What it started as a harmless longing for a famously contentious rice dish quickly devolves into discord and hurt. Don't y'all have civil wars? Y'all are like the originators of black on black crime. I heard they're ramping up more funding for policing where you are. Do you have your hashtag picked out yet? Look. We go at each other hard because if we're being real, how much do we actually know about each other's cultures? I mean, intimately and intentionally, how much do we know? It's certainly not enough to criticize ourselves in the passionate ways we do. And to be clear, this is entirely the fault of white supremacy. I mean, who dictates how black people are depicted or witnessed or remembered across the diaspora? Yep, y'all know who, the Hewless folks. I'm world-famous white peopleologist Michael Harriet, and I know better than to weigh in on the Jolliffe Wars. So welcome to another episode of Drapetomaniacs Unshackled History. Today's episode takes us to the multicultural rebellion of 1811, a rebellion that had the explicit goal of killing whites. Let's go. They ain't teach this one in school. Turn this shit up. We'll continue this episode of Drapetomaniacs after this break. We're back. Let's continue with this episode. Listen, I'll be the first to admit, Diaspora Wars provide exceptional comedy. The jokes are fucking hilarious. 
cutting, sharp, precise. I'm not gonna hold you. I was a little shocked that they got electricity down there. Is that fucked up? See, I think the real trouble here is living in a country with some of the world's largest oil reserves and still struggling to fuel a small household generator. How embarrassing. Wit and humor aside, diaspora wars are uniquely divisive. The online phenomenon isn't some isolated subculture practice. It's a reflection of the disconnection sewn into the fabric of the black collectivism by none other than white supremacy and its insidious claws. America was founded on the myth of rugged individualism, and that concept espouses freedom for yourself over others. But black people have always fought for the collective freedom of black people in America. The oppression we face is even more unifying than our skin color, our area code, our language of origin, or financial class. This story is about what happens when a bunch of individuals from the diaspora come together to put everything on the line for freedom. In 1806, sugarcane farmer James Brown was practicing some retail therapy at the slave market when he had the impulse to buy two slaves for $1,300. He thought it was a steal, which, you know, it literally was. The two enslaved people he purchased had already been stolen from the Asante kingdom, 15-year-old Kowaku and 21-year-old Kwamina. The microaggressions started the moment the sale went through, and I mean immediately. What are your names? Kwaku. Kwamina. That's Kook and Kwamamana. Got it. How'd you get that from Kwaku? Did he even try? Farmer boy wasn't about to learn how to say that correctly. To be fair, y'all know black names are hard to pronounce. Is it their fault that we don't stick to simple white names like Benedict Cumberbatch, Matthew McConaughey, or Shia LaBeouf? I'll give you a second to add your own. To Farmer Brown, these people were just his property. To him, it was no different than your parents calling your Sega Genesis a Nintendo. Luckily, Kowaku and Kwamina were surrounded with black people from all over the diaspora, all with their unique backgrounds, cultures, and histories. But of course, white people just saw slaves. If Farmer Brown was even the least bit curious about the scars on his new, quote, property, he might have learned that they were West African warriors called Okofukum, he might have also discovered just how much he had them fucked up. But, yo, I'm getting ahead of myself. Farmer Brown had a plantation in New Orleans long before Louisiana had even become a state. America had just bought New Orleans from the French. The deodorant challenge colonizers then held a getting out of the slavery business sale because of an uprising in Haiti. The Louisiana Territory became home to an eclectic mix of black people, free people of color, and white slave owners who were still shaken after surviving the most successful slave revolt in the history of the planet. But the still enslaved people were looking at their most profound desires just walking around on the other side of the property line, free. I was going to ask you to imagine how furious that must have made them, but we got something even better. Let us imagine it for you. Want to know how Kwaku and Kwamina felt? You can ask them yourself. That's right. Through our proprietary podcasting technology that is way too complicated to explain to you right now, we have devised a way to reach through space and time so we can talk directly to the ancestors. 
we can now get the real tea from the real underground gang. Introducing the main line. The main line. All for the low, low cost of $14.99 for the first minute and then 99 cents for each additional minute after that. The main line. Hello, hello. You got Kwaku. Kwaku is Michael Harriet. <laughs> Michael, we've heard about you up here. You know. Up there? Black Heaven. It's technically not up, but, you know, semantics. Big fan of your work. Oh, I'm a massive fan of yours. Are we talking about the time we killed all them paper napkins? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The revolt. Could you fill in a few gaps for me? What was it like seeing those free black and brown people walking around while you were still enslaved? Oh, man, it was terrible. Watching free black folk live the life I once had, coming and going as they pleased, owning their own property, loving whom they wanted, while I was there working all day, getting whipped, wearing tattered clothes, looking like a sweaty, disgruntled KFC server desperate to join everyone else at the Popeyes across the street. Cruelty bar none. And James Brown, that tiny bitch. No, 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 not you, Mr. Dynamite. Yeah, exactly, the other James Brown. The translucent demon who thought he owned me. Hmm. Last I heard, he was slow roasting in hell. Isn't that fun? Also, the Henny Tap. Do we have an update? So sorry, Michael. Ms. Turner just got here. It's chaos. She's remodeling. It's a whole thing. Anyway, where were we? Y'all have a henny tap? I know you're not allowed to give us details, but damn. Anyway, yes, New Orleans. Were you allowed to just roam around? Not freely. We were still enslaved, but we could visit other plantations, go to black-owned bars, hang around the meeting houses. It sounds incredible until you consider that I'm still a fucking slave. Me, a grown-ass man, had been reduced to some gotta-be-home-by-streetlights-ass nigga. Sounds like you got to be with other black folks. I imagine y'all were all hanging together. We were the same, but we were also vastly different. Different past lives, different current realities, in and out of chains. While I saw a bunch of black individuals with resources and knowledge to help us get free, all them white slave owners saw was property. How much do you think Farmer James knew about your past? That cum rag knew nothing about Kwamina or me. By the time we'd arrived in Louisiana, the place had only been a part of America for five years. But we were trained West African soldiers. We had the scars to prove it. Hand-to-hand -hand combat, gun training, war tactics. The special set of skills Liam Neeson loved to bang on about. We'd already perfected them. The day they handed me a curved blade to till the crops was the day Farmer Brown signed their contract with death. Stop lying. He just gave you a weapon? He didn't think it was a weapon. He didn't consider that I might see it as one. That dummy just looked at our teeth, nicknamed us, and put us on a wagon. I said, oh, I got your kook all right. I'll kook that ass up with this blade. Culling plants, when I can cull the crack-skinned dumbass who enslaved us, he might as well have given me an AR-15. You've seen Amistad, right? We wasn't about to ask them to give us free. You were gonna take it. There you go. Hey man, I hate to be rude, but I gotta bounce soon. Prince and Jimi Hendrix are about to go on in a few. Sorry, one moment. Was that? Did Chad fix it? Oh, is Rick James up there too? You know what? Nah, I don't even want to spoil the surprise if I make it. It was good chatting, Michael. But Chadwick got the Henny Taps moving again because <laughs> of course he did. He says hi, by the way. Wait, Bozeman, he knows me? Kwaku out. We'll continue after this break. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? 
TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monet Exchange, and you're listening to Dreptomaniacs. Kawako and Kwamina quickly figured out that they had all the resources they needed to take their freedom back just sitting there around them. And with their military training, organized resistance wasn't just possible, it was inevitable. Let's hit the main line again. The main line. You've got Kwamina. Hey, Kwamina. Uh, this is Michael Harriet. The brother from the Griot? Oh, okay. Doing a little reconnaissance work, are we? Something like that. I'm doing a podcast. Donna, what's that? Uh, it's kind of like a radio show, but for the internet, kind of. <laughs> no, I'm just messing with you. Your show's about black history, right? We're not giving bad relationship advice to heterosexual couples based on an archaic gendered stereotypes, correct? Promise you, it's nothing like that. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Lord knows we need to keep some of y'all away from these recording devices. How can I help you, darling? I'm sure you've heard. Tina just got in. It's an exciting time in black heaven. Hey, can you tell me about the revolt of 1811? Oh, that gig? I remember it. Fondly. Okay, sit somewhere. It's a good one. If you got an L, roll it. There I was, behind enemy lines. I had no contact with any of the soldiers in my unit except for our special operations director, Comrade Kwaku. We both knew that once we had established surveillance on our adversaries, we needed to stick together at any cost. It took a while, but eventually we mapped out a plan of attack. Codename, Operation Mayo Massacre. Sounds like y'all weren't messing around, Kwamina. I guess your military training kicked in. Darling, my military training never left, if you stay ready, right? Under the guise of unpaid skilled laborers on Farmer Brown's plantation, we began scoping out the lay of the land. New Orleans had all sorts of security lapses that could easily be exploited. They lacked an organized militia, the army was unguarded, and they allowed prisoners of war to fraternize in the local meeting spots. Complete fools. I marked Charles Delon as an asset we could turn. He had access to information essential to Operation Mail Massacre's success. Could you tell us more about Mr. DeLonde? Our understanding is that Charles was practically a house Negro, a real Jason Whitlock type. That wasn't the case at all. Charles DeLonde was a secret asset. I believe the colloquial term is militant redbone. He would acquiesce with the pace the enemy combatants in their presence. But in the woods, with us, Charles was fairly and squarely on some Malcolm X shit. Once I could determine his background and authenticate his commitment to our cause, we incorporated the asset into an OP. What, darling? I can hear you thinking over this contraption. Perhaps I'm being a little sensitive here, Kwamina, and forgive me if I am, but the term asset, isn't that a little impersonal? We're talking about Charles, your friend Charles. Oh, my sweet child. My dear, precious child. Brotherhood in the armed resistance is forged in the field of battle. Friendship takes on a different meaning in that field. It is a relationship that is often burdened by urgency and obligation. Delon was many things, and that included being both a friend and a key asset for the resistance plans. Are we done moralizing relationship dynamics? Yo, I'm sorry, I wasn't trying to- Darling, you called the pair for insight, right? It's fine. The challenging questions are welcome. 
Because of Delon's cover as an overseer house slave, he was privy to information that Kwaku and I weren't. His reputation for doling punishments to the other enslaved folks also marked us from suspicion as we collected more allies, weapons, and intel. According to my research, Charles Delon was a Creole mulatto on Colonel Manuel Andre's nearby agricultural concentration camp. And I'm sure the white folks thought there was no better role model for the two newly arrived Africans than Charles Delon. He was only 22 years old and the Andrew Plantation's primary slave supervisor. Charles was known to be compliant, intelligent, and so trusted by his master that he was allowed to exact brutal beatings on the men and women he supervised. And I guess that's why you let him continue to beat on all the other slaves, to maintain that cover. His cover was far more important to us than the optics of him whipping us. In the abyss of extreme survival, you don't get many options. The enemy saw what we wanted him to see. Delon treated us exactly how he would. It added an extra layer of authenticity to his cover. It's where he gets his code name from, Lieutenant Motisa. But perhaps the enemy combatants trusted him so much because of his light-skinned complexion. You know, that sort of thing matters to them. If it makes you feel any better, Charles had a lighter hand with his corporal punishment compared to that of the white overseers. I'm not sure it makes me feel better, but kind of makes sense. I'm assuming you made Charles's code name Lieutenant Motisa because he was essentially a house slave, basically saying this guy is acting compliant to the white folks, but in actuality, he was an undercover agent for the revolution. So you came from West Africa, while Charles's people originated from New Orleans. Did that cause any friction? No friction on that front. Sure, sometimes we'd engage in hypotheticals, debates over which culture made the best rice dishes, but then we got introduced to gumbo. And I don't know, the conversation just seemed to simmer off. It was like, pass me the Tabasco, you know what I mean? There was also the not-so-latent commitment to light-skinned and nonsense, but Kwaku and I knew to expect that. Gotta love that consistency. Do you have any examples for us? Darling, the usual. Struggling with the social stigmas of having good hair and being conventionally attractive. There was also a point where he openly wondered why so many of the other black prisoners of war resented his larger living quarters and freedom to visit other plantations at night. A mystery for the ages. But Delon was just one of the many operatives who joined our revolt. I'm sure that our diverse backgrounds is what helped build Operation Mail Massacre. What are some of the tips Charles gave the resistance? Charles knew the lay of the plantation, including details about the owner's routines, down to the exact times when each enemy operative went to bed. He also knew which plantation owners were getting an Airbnb out of town on the holiday weekends. He helped Kwaku and I get familiar with the enemy's pagan holiday traditions. Ever heard of the Feast of Epiphany? Some primitive belief in their porcelain-colored infant deity, who essentially is just a bootleg horse. A baby with powers of God, born in a barn, or some of the ridiculousness. I forget the details. But Charles knew the observation of this holiday meant the enemy would be away from their homes at a specific week of the year. This information gave us the operational advantage needed to execute our plan. Charles might have been an I'll be sure looking ass nigga, but baby, when it came to Operation Mayo Massacre, he was our I'll be sure looking ass nigga. Thanks, Kwamina. I had no idea the revolt had so much detailed cooperation between all parties. I appreciate you. Of course, darling. Now, you sure this podcast isn't about to be one of them toxic relationship advice shows? Because if I find out you got me on here telling quote-unquote females to be his piece, I'm going to come down there and haunt you. Personally. I swear, it's just black history and jokes. Good and good again. Okay, Tony Morrison and I are about to go skinny dipping in the lake of white tears. Honestly, so refreshing. Michael, make good choices now. We watching you.
damn, that really does sound refreshing. One day. So yeah, the different cultures all came together. It didn't matter where they were from originally. Everybody black was now living under the same boot of white supremacy. Charles DeLong's master was named Colonel Andrew, and he was so confident in his slaving abilities that he actually let Charles visit another plantation where Charles's girlfriend lived. He didn't know Charles was in the enslaved group chat cooking up revolutions and shit. The masters loved Charles with all the colorism their hearts could muster. Something about his light skin made him more trustworthy in their minds. He was only 22 years old and the primary slave supervisor, like Calvin from McDonald's. But if McDonald's was a slave plantation, which it kind of is, his masters loved him so much that they let him physically harm the other enslaved. I imagine it had to be tearing him up inside. Or, you know, we can ask him on... After a word from our sponsors. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back into this episode. Ever wonder what the ancestors would say about the current state of events? Do you live under the mistaken belief that your descendants weren't throwing mad hands in the face of oppression? Well, now, through our proprietary technology, you can reach back through the space-time continuum to talk with Black people who have already transitioned into the afterlife. Find out where Big Mama hid the will. Ask your daddy exactly who the new family members at the funeral were. See if your grandma will finally tell you the secret to her sweet potato pie. Psst, it's the nutmeg. You can do all this and more for the low cost of $14.99 for the first minute and then $0.99 cents for each additional minute after that. Just dial 1-900-MAINLINE to start calling on the ancestors today. Buy now and we'll throw in a free ticket to the Biggie Tupac Versus coming up next month in Black Heaven. Power to the people. Power to the people, my brother. Hey. May I please speak with Charles DeLon? It's Michael Harriet. From the Drapedomaniacs podcast? How do so many of you know about it? We just got started. My man. Brother, we've been reading and listening to you for a while. Keeping a close eye, making sure you ain't some jive sucker co-opting our culture to sell it out. So far, you seem like a righteous brother. Keep up the good work. Oh, okay, I will. Um, so, uh, could you tell me a little bit about the planning of the 1811 revolt? You mean when we cracked back at those backcrackers? The revolution started way before the killing. See, that jive turkey Colonel Andrew thought I was going to the Trepanier plantation to see my girlfriend. But does that sound like freedom to you, brother? Forced procreation at the behest of the white man isn't freedom to me. And to what end? To put another black child into this collection of property? Fantasia was a stone-cold brick house, but a foxy mama like that deserved to choose her Casanova. You dig what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I gotta ask. You're from 1811, right? Why do you talk like a Truck Turner movie? Oh, we got all the movies up here in Black Heaven, but for some reason, those films speak to me, you dig? So now, this is how I talk. You got a problem with that, Jack? 
Oh, oh no, no, no. I was just curious. I was expecting you to sound like Wyclef Jean, and instead you sound like Shaft had a baby with Superfly. Well, now you know. So zip the line and let me finish breaking it down for you. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah. While Whitey was trying to breed my people in me, we were sneaking off plotting cold-blooded, black-powered revenge. I won't lie. I didn't know what to make of these brothers at first. They kept talking about the revolution, but didn't know how things worked in America. They had just gotten off the boat and would lecture me, a brother whose family roots went three generations deep in the divided states of America. See, Michael, I'm not one to let a low-down jive turkey still wet behind the ears lecture me about freedom. There was nothing they had thought about that I hadn't thought about already. Plus, I had to beat these brothers regularly, so you can imagine that trust was at an all-time low. Yeah, so how did you work that all out? Well, that's just it. We didn't really. Not at first. They could barely speak English. And I was a light-skinned house slave who beat niggas on a daily. Understandably, they didn't want me dipping in their Kool-Aid, if you dig what I'm saying. But even with all that, we still commiserated around the fact that we hated the man. Even if we can't all dig each other, we can all dig that, Jack. Now, can you dig that? Right on? Solid. Kwaku and Kwamina gave us the lowdown on guerrilla warfare tactics. I started telling my fellow compatriots about stories of revolution from other plantations. Even though I was just a young blood, I told them about the freedom fighter Juan San Malo, the icon, the leader of a maroon colony close by. That cat was so cold, he repelled anyone who dared to enter the German coast swamps for years. Malo was caught and hung by the Spanish militia, but those jive suckers can't hang the revolution, Jack. Right on. Yeah, you dig it, brother. I told them about this white French-speaking honky that got arrested for talking about liberty and freedom loud enough for black folks to hear it. And I told them every story I knew about some cracker getting a beat down from a brother or sister who had had just enough of their Caucasian bullshit. I mean, all that stuff had us hyped up, you know. And it was obvious that Kwaku and Kwamina weren't just selling wolf tickets. But mostly, we just kind of wanted to kill some white folk. And it was time to get cracking on them crackers. Shit, okay, uh, I wasn't ready for that. Hey, you know who else wasn't ready? Them honkies. You tell them about Gustav yet? Yeah, I was gonna get to him. Let me do it. Yeah, it's your story, so sure, go ahead. That jive sucker. Trepanye kept a little black boy as a house pet. He would feed him table scraps like a goddamn puppy. That boy was named Gustav. But Gustav was reaching that weird, awkward age, like the kids from Stranger Things. Word in the plantation was, Gustav was about to find himself out in the fields with the rest of the slaves as the next child was born. See, brother, whether it's Herschel Walker, Stacia Dash, or Candace Owens, the white man only allows one pet at a time. God damn, Charles. I mean, they told me you were militant, but... Listen, brother, any jive low-down sucker cracker bringing that jibber-jabber bullshit to me, they must keep it trucking before they catch a slap upside the head. And that goes double for these gator-faced sellout so-called thought leaders in the black community. Um, right on. I have a question for you, Michael. Why did they stop making black exploitation movies? Those movies had good revolutionary values that uplifted our people, told us about getting the pushers and the pimps out of our community, showed stories of black heroes taking down the man and sticking it to the system. Those movies were a reflection of the revolutionary spirit we started. It had to end. When white folks saw that it was making money, they tried to do it. You know how they do. But of course, they took out all of the revolution and ruined it. Once they removed the blackness from it, it was just exploitation, and black folks stopped going. And we could see that in real life. Damn, that's messed up. 
I can't believe we're never getting another Uptown Saturday night. You know, I was talking to Portier about that movie the other day. Can't wait to ask Bill Cosby about it when he gets up here. Um, he's probably not going to be up there with y'all. Is there a black hell? I know I'm not supposed to ask. Oh, it's terrible down there, brother. They're listening to Sweet Caroline on the loop while reruns of Friends play 24-7. Like I said, bad. Oof, nah, that's pretty horrible. Anyway, thanks for talking with me, Charles. Catch you on the flip, brother. Well, that was Charles, and clearly, Charles don't play. There's one individual I haven't mentioned yet. I was saving this person for last. Let's get Harry Kenner on the main line. The Harry speaking. Hey, it's Michael Harriet of the Dryptomaniacs podcast. And I was wondering if... Man, we got Colorado D up here. I knew it was you, baby. Word around Black Heaven is you've been researching the revolt. Had you forgotten about me? Never that, Harry. Never that. For my research, this entire thing couldn't have happened without you, right? You were the one who did the networking. So you must have met Kawako and Kwamina early on since the people who enslaved you were the ones who sold them to Farmer Brown. Come through research. Yeah, I was working, AKA enslaved on the Henderson plantation. We was fed up. So I was like, man, we got to unionize. I got five brothers I knew I could trust. It was Peter, Croker, Smillet, Nantum, and Charles. And I said, put down your tools and pick up your toolie. We got some killing to do, mate. One of the things I brought to the table was I knew which slaves could speak English and could be trusted. Because you can't be taking that for granted. So I was vetting them the whole way through, baby. Seeing which ones was putting sugar on their grits, which ones was shaving all their facial hair off, and which ones didn't know how to play spades. That last one is a little bit unfair since black people never actually teach anyone how to play spades. But I feel you. So y'all didn't have one Clarence Thomas in the whole crew? Everyone was just down like that? Oh yeah, believe it or not. It didn't take much effort to convince everybody that slavery was pretty whack. I just said, listen, baby, we got to get the hell up out of here. Next thing you know, more and more people coming to the planning sessions. We had Elisha, who was the getaway driver. We had this dude named Jerry. He knew how to forge weapons. And so more and more brothers was joining the cause. It was time for war. Okay, Michael, I'll see you. Hey, you really did your research. And the best part is we all still kick it up here, rooting for black love every season of The Bachelor and Bachelorette. Honestly, that shit seemed more impossible than when we was trying to take over all of New Orleans. But hey, we ain't giving up yet, baby. I'll talk to you next time, boy. I love that energy, Harry. With black love, anything is possible, including bringing the diaspora together to kill some white folks. Kill the white people. Uh-oh, we're gonna make them hurt. Kill the white people. White supremacy would have us believe that cooperation is a giant leap or stretch. It's not. Twitter, or is it Skeeter now, or... Zeter, whatever, Twitter often performs diaspora wars as a reflection of the diaspora instead of a product of the white imagination. But black people understand just how valuable diversity is. The multicultural revolt of 1811 is evidence of that. We regarded our specificities, our familiar but unique lived experiences as strategic advantages. The revolutionaries we remember in this story used those differences to create tools for survival in the war against white supremacy. In the next episode, we'll talk about exactly how that resistance went down, how it ultimately ended, 
and why you weren't taught about this in school. The kind of diaspora war we should all support. The kind of diaspora war that led to 500 enslaved people revolting and marching through the streets, trying to burn down every home on their way to New Orleans to take that shit over. And we'll get to the part you all tuned in for, killing those white people. I'm Michael Harriet, and this has been Drapetomaniacs. On the next episode of Drapetomaniacs Unshackled History, I'm Detective Helena Crane with the Black History Investigation Unit of the Social Wellness Force in the year 3582. I was hoping to ask you a few questions about what happened on this plantation last night. I'm not talking to no cops, dog. Fair. But see, I'm not really a cop. I'm from the future, and I'm just here to get your side of the story before they execute you. We continue with part two of Diaspora Wars and investigate the white lies. Drapetomaniacs is a collaboration between Other Tone, Sony Music Entertainment, and Queer Media. This podcast is produced by Nolika Radway and Moses Shoyola with senior producer Janicia Francis, managing producer Joanne DeLuna, production coordinator Homero Radway, and production assistant Jillian Roberts Atkinson. Executive producers for this show are Pharrell Williams and Scott Venner. Our team includes Silas Miami, Dallas Rico, Roderick Morrow, and Danielle Solomon. Special thanks to voice actors Andrea O'Brien Vives, Jason Vives, Kiana Gomori Pijo, Blue Radway, Reginald Gardner, Renee Richardson, and Latoya McFarlane. Our sound engineer is Ian Herrera. Our fact checker is LaPortia Thomas. Music supervisor is Patricia Wangeshi Kihoro. The theme song is Freedom by Pharrell Williams. This episode features Where the Party At and Welcome Party People by John Runefelt and music by Limbaka by Omri Smarter, Legendary Run by River Loom, Terrams by Amrit Saji, Busset by Yaron Premack, and Wave Art by Gal Lev. This episode featured W. Kamal Bell as Kawaku and Carvel Wallace as Charles DeLonde. Read more by Michael Harriet at thegrio.com. Freedom.